Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Fan. The nothing personal word of the day is fan, not what's above your head, not what you use in your hand. I'm talking fan, as in fans, the people who make the sports world go round and round. Fans have been the center of everybody's attention since COVID-19 reared its ugly viral head back in March The possibility of games going on without fans was unthinkable. And then it became reality. Now sports is on its way back. And it's almost become part of our nomenclature. Sports, no fans. It's not even an expectation. So I wanted to talk today about the role of the fan. What fans mean to teams? What fans mean to players? You're listening to nothing personal, and you would think that my only answer is that fans mean money. Obviously, that is only one part of the role of a fan and what a fan means to people, executives. But fans don't mean money to players. Fan means experience to players. Wait, you know what? Let's be completely honest about what fans mean to players, too. Fans mean business to players as well, because they know the more fans who attend games, the more money owners make, the more ability that owners have to pay players. Players know the more fans who watch games on TV, the higher the broadcast fees are paid to teams, the higher payroll teams will have, the more money players will have. So is it as easy as just saying that we all look at fans, we all look at you as simply dollar signs, as means to an end. Over the course of 18 years, I spent a lot of time with fans, talking to fans, thinking about fans, trying to understand fans, having been a fan myself, having transitioned from a fan to an executive, having watched employees become employees after they were fans watching employees be fans when they used to be fans, they remain fans, and then they're no longer employees. Watching owners ask players to meet with fans, talk to fans, be with fans, be a part of the fan experience. It's like a Rubik's Cube that can never be solved. A mathematical equation with no answer, which goes counter to everything I've always believed. I love math because in math, there's right and there's wrong. There's an answer or there's not the right answer. With fans, it's a much more complicated relationship that we have with you. When I was a fan, I was interested in one thing. I was interested in winning. And if I couldn't have winning, I was interested in experience. And if I couldn't have experience, I was interested in memory. I took that with me when I started running a baseball team. And I quickly realized 
that the number one desire of all fans is the same as mine, and that's winning. And the problem is, as an executive, I can't control that. As a fan, I always believed that executives and players could control my happiness, my emotionality. They could control whether I went to bed happy or sad because they could control whether they won or lost. And I always looked at executives feeling as though they could control the players. Therefore, everybody had a say in whether or not I was having the best possible experience I could have as a fan. And then I went through years and years of losing seasons as a Knicks fan. And I realized that if I couldn't count on winning, was I going to waste a 20 and 62 season or a 30 and 52 season? Was I going to give up my fandom? I decided I was not going to be a fair weather fan. But I would talk to others who were fair weather fans. And I asked the same question before I even became an executive. For you, is it winning or nothing? And those who say yes are fans that as an executive, I really don't have interest in. And I'm not saying this in a harsh way. I'm saying this in a business mathematical way. It means that whatever marketing plan I come up with, whatever sales tools and sales prizes and sales incentives, whatever I come up with, hiring the best salespeople, having the best of everything, putting a team together that you think is going to win and then asking you to come to a game and buy tickets. If you're only interested in winning, you are not going to come to a game until you know for sure that it is a winning team or a winning situation. There's a name for that. We call them fair weather fans, bandwagon fans. It's for the 60,000 people in Miami who showed up to playoff games in 2003 when there were 5,000 season ticket holders. 55,000 people loved being a fan when the team was winning, when the team was in the playoffs. But my cost of making you a fan is zero because I'm not going to spend money on you. Because when we win, you're going to come. And when we lose, which we're guaranteed to do as a franchise, you're going to leave. So second thing. The experience. I can control the experience. When I would go to Madison Square Garden as a fan during a 30 and 52 season, and I would look across Madison Square Garden and I couldn't see the blue seats because of the plume of smoke. That was an experience. When I would go to Nick games and they'd be mostly empty and I could yell at players and at coaches and at GMs and they could hear me perfectly. That was an experience as a heckler. When I went to games, when the season was a 30 and 52, but I was surrounded by people who I knew in the same season ticket area where I sat, that was an experience. We looked forward to being together. We would commiserate together. I can market to people like that. I can sell to people like that. I can train people to sell and market to people like that. I would always say that the experience is what we are selling, not wins and losses. We are selling the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back. Why would I say that? Because I want fans to be associated with our team, not with a specific player. Because players come and go, but the name on the front of the jersey always is with you. And then, of course, I think about fans from a scope standpoint. I think about rabid fans. 
I think about fans who are, shall I say, almost, almost needing a temporary restraining order. And I think about fans and moving them through the pipeline of fandom, building on the fact that they like the experience, building on the fact that they come to the ballpark one time, building on the fact that they'll come to a few games and then becoming a season ticket holder. I've spent time on nothing personal on bonus mailbag pods talking about the shoot, the roller coaster of fans, putting them in the pipeline. Do you know that players pay attention to fans and the type of fans that are in a building? There's some players, just like people in your life, players are human beings. They've got the same range of emotions we have. Some are shy, some are outgoing. Some are embarrassed when they make mistakes. Some don't care. Some are upset when they get booed. Some revel in it. Some demand cheers. Some are okay in silence. Some can perform in front of small crowds. Some need huge crowds in order to perform. Some need to perform in home stadiums that are full of home fans, but can't perform in home stadiums full of road fans. I would spend time with players talking about the player-fan relationship. And I would try to make them understand the role fans played in our team and how important it was to sign autographs, how important it was to help fans make memories, to help fans enjoy the experience of being at a game because that was the best hope of having them come back. Because players in my years would always complain, we have no fans, there's no one at the ballpark. It's so depressing to play in front of 5,000 people. Why can't you do more? And I would always, mea culpa, and say, you're right. I could do more. I should be able to sign better players. I should be able to be in charge of a team with a bigger payroll, raise more revenue. But in the meantime, let's try to do better in our relationship with fans. That means doing things in the community, which many of our players did. That means engaging in fans at a game, which many of our players did. I would go to players who would blow off community events or who would not ever throw a ball into the stands, who wouldn't sign any autographs. And I would say, explain to me your rationale. And I would hear a very common response. I don't have time. I'm busy. I'm at the ballpark every day, all day. When I'm done, I just want to go home and be with my family. There's so few of them anyway. What's the difference? All of these different excuses. And I would try to explain to them that they're part of getting fans into that pipeline. It's going to be a very interesting experience in 2020, if and when we can get this season started in Major League Baseball. Because the team that has the best chance to win is the team that has the players who are actually driven to win, who don't need the roar of the crowd, who have the ability to perform in backfields during spring training when no one's watching who understand that coming together as a team and trying to win as a team is not dependent on having 30,000 people, 40,000 people, is not deleteriously impacted by having 5,000 people. As a matter of fact, teams that may not be favored to win have a better chance. Small market teams who draw small crowds may have a better chance because those players are used to it. Those players are used to playing in a much quieter atmosphere. Think about the advantage that the St. Louis Cardinals have, the Chicago Cubs, the Boston Red Sox, the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
Think about the home field advantage the Marlins never have. Now realize that all teams are in the same position. It doesn't matter if there's a million people watching on TV versus 10,000 for another team watching on TV. It doesn't matter that the Yankees are the greatest trademark in the history of baseball and that the Marlins are a brand new M that no one ever knows and no one wears and no one buys and no one cares about. Because when those teams play, it's level. Ironically, you can have a team that actually has very few fans, but they can have some of the most rabid fans in all of sports. The Marlins are a great example of that. Maybe the most famous fan since John 316 with the Bob Ross wig is someone named Lawrence Levy. You know him as Marlins man. Marlins man wears an orange Marlins jersey, the type of jersey that's no longer part of the jerseys of the Marlins because Jeter got rid of them. But he still wears his orange jersey to every game he goes to, not just Marlins games, not just baseball games, World Series games, NBA games, horse races. Everywhere he goes, basketball games, finals games, there's one guy in an orange Marlins jersey with a Marlins visor, sometimes worn backwards, sideways, or frontwards. The most common question I've been asked about Marlins man is whether or not we paid Marlins man to be a Marlins fan, and the answer is no. The question is whether I've met Marlins man, and the answer is of course. The question is whether I like Marlins man and appreciate Marlins man, the answer is of course. But I always recognized and believed in him for what he is and what he was and what he will always be. He is someone who loves the game of baseball, loves the attention that he gets, and loves the attention that he brings to the Marlins. I appreciated that. But I also knew that as one man on the top of the fan pipeline, our franchise was not any more or any less successful because of him. No one bought season tickets to the Marlins because of Marlins Man. No extra people watched TV Marlins games because of him. No one bought an extra jersey because of him. But it always made me feel good when I would see the Marlins logo that I was a part of, that team that I loved so much, get so much attention. I love a fan like that and fans like that. But bring me all the way down to the fan who comes to one game. And when I'm walking around the ballpark, that's a fan I love too. Because I take that challenge. Talking to a fan. Letting him or her understand what it is to be a baseball fan. What it is to be a sports fan. What it is not to need a winner. I used to love the challenge of debating fans in the concourse of Pro Player Stadium or Marlins Park when they were angry about a result or angry about a trade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com There's another type of fan that I came in touch with throughout my years, both in Montreal and Miami. That's the celebrity fan. The celebrity fan's an interesting type of fan. My favorite type of celebrity fan is the Denzel Washington, Jack Nicholson type of Laker fan, the Spike Lee Nick fan. You know why? They buy their tickets. They are season ticket holders. They draw attention. They make your ballpark cool. They make your arena cool. And they're part of revenue. My least favorite type of celebrity fan is the type who calls and expects free tickets every time they come to a game because it is their belief that just their appearance alone is enough to warrant a free ticket. In Montreal, we did not have a capacity issue. In Florida, we didn't have a capacity issue. So how did I deal with my marketing staff when they would come to me and say, hey, we have a celebrity wants to come to a game? I would say, okay, are they willing to buy tickets? The answer was generally no. Okay, are they willing to make an appearance on the Jumbotron during the game? Maybe an interview. The answer would be either yes or no. If it's yes, I would start the process of giving them complimentary tickets. If it's no, I would keep going. Are they willing to do any autograph signings? Yes, I would talk about free tickets. No, I would ask another question. Are they willing to meet the team if it's someone who could have a motivating message? Is there anything they could do to be a part of what we're doing in our clubhouse? If it's yes, I would look toward free tickets. If it's no, I would keep going. I would try to find any reason possible to get a celebrity into our games. In Montreal, tons of movies got filmed in Montreal. So people would be in town filming movies and they'd want to see baseball. What was my number one rule? And it was a pretty simple one. If you get a free ticket from me and we're playing the Dodgers, you may not cheer for the Dodgers. You may not wear a Dodgers hat or a Dodgers jersey. If you want to wear any Dodgers merchandise, no problem, but I'm going to charge you for the ticket. That's a rule I always had. I never cared who people cared for. If you're paying to come see a game, that it's an event that I'm sponsoring, you can share for whoever you want. It never bothered me in Miami when we'd have a Yankee game and everyone would be cheering for the Yankees. 
because they were there having a fan experience and they were Floridians. And when the Yankees would leave, maybe a percentage of those fans would come back and watch the Marlins. Maybe they would come and watch the Marlins play the Red Sox so they could root against the Red Sox and for the Marlins. Maybe they would come and look at former Yankees who were playing in other teams. I was always okay. But if you want a complimentary ticket, here's a hint. You cheer for the team which gave you that complimentary ticket. I got a chance to see and meet quite a few celebrities during the course of 18 years. I enjoyed hosting LeBron James, Dwayne Wade. They were big fans. They enjoyed coming to games. Couldn't have been nicer. Many, many different movie stars who came from Jessica Biel to James Caan to Stephen Baldwin. Some of them would even throw first pitches. That would be another thing I'd ask. You willing to throw a first pitch? Some of them are, some of them aren't. Some of them get embarrassed, some of them don't. Celebrity fans are an important part And if you think that all 30 teams in Major League Baseball and all 30 teams in the NBA do not focus on their celebrity fans, you are misguided. Especially in this day of social media. You want to be cool. And there's nothing less cool than baseball and sports executives, me included. There's nothing more cool than the right celebrity. The only thing less cool than an executive is a celebrity who thinks he he or she is cool, but actually isn't, acts as though they're cool when they're not. That's even less cool than I am. So the most famous experience I ever had with a fan, in my mind, was the day I spent negotiating with fans. I would negotiate with fans throughout the course of my career over different things. Fans would have complaints. They'd be upset about weather delays. They'd be upset about something that happened with the team. They'd be upset about a trade. They'd be upset about a hot dog or a cold pizza. And I would get into a negotiation when it would come to my level, or I would see fans in the concourse. Their kid dropped their ice cream. Their kid, something happened here, something happened there. Everything's a negotiation. We've said that at Nothing Personal. You know that very well. One time in 2008, I had an actual negotiation. Just a couple of weeks ago was the anniversary of the day Ken Griffey hit his 600th home run at Pro Player Stadium. It was a June day in 2008 off a player we had named Mark Hendrickson. I had been prepared for Ken Griffey hitting his 600th home run long before Cincinnati came to town. I had done the math. I calculated the number of at-bats per home run. I had said to our stadium operations people that we have to be ready. I was saying to our clubbies, our road clubby, our home clubby, be ready because I believe there is a high likelihood that Ken Griffey will hit his 600th home run at pro player at a Marlins game. I wanted tickets to be sold. I wanted there to be a crowd as much as possible because I felt as though that would be a game that would be the lead story nationally, not just sports news. And I always wanted things to look like they were going better in Florida and in Miami than they actually were. That's why I always made up attendance. I wanted things to appear better. I wanted it to appear cool to go to a game. It's like going to a restaurant. 
when they've got red ropes out front, velvet ropes, and there's a line, you think, wow, that's the place I want to be. You go inside, there's 20 people. You're like, wait a minute. Wait, I thought this was a cool restaurant. Or you make a smaller restaurant with fewer tables. You keep it packed. You have a waiting list and you turn people away. There's nothing that people like more than scarcity. They like being able to tell a story that they were there when something happened. So Ken Griffey comes to the plate. I'm watching the game. Here comes the pitch. And there it goes. It's a home run. I know immediately it's going into the right field. There's different parts of right field. And I knew this was going right over the right field wall. And I knew there was a cluster of fans there. We had security there waiting in all of the outfield where a ball could go, where there were people, a pro player, if you may remember. There were places where a home run would go that no fan would have access to it. You saw in that documentary we reviewed, Long Gone Summer, that Mark McGuire's big home run his record-breaking home run landed in a bullpen area where no fans were. That was always a possibility for Ken Griffey's 600th. The ball's in the air, and I know immediately that it is going to land in the seats. So I'm watching, and I'm waiting for a phone call. Five minutes later, I get a phone call from our head of stadium operations who said, we've got the fan who has the ball. I said, who is it? I was told it's Joe. I said, okay, I need to see Joe. If you look at the video of Ken Griffey's 600th home run ball, you will see something fascinating. You will see a scrum, people jumping all over each other, trying to get the ball. And in the background, you'll see one man with his back to the scrum, walking away from the scrum as though he didn't want to get hurt, as though he wasn't interested in what was happening. And you'll notice he had a number 52 T-shirt on his back. That was a giveaway. It was a Sergio Mitre T-shirt giveaway that this fan was wearing to the game. This fan caught the ball, dropped another ball that people were going after as he left the stands, told security he had the ball, which had been marked. It was authenticated, and he was leaving the ballpark. I knew immediately I wanted to get that ball back. I was at the game that day with my daughter, my oldest daughter, Hannah. And as I saw the ball leave, and I said, we have to go now. And I took her with me, and we went down to the bowels of pro player. And we met Joe, and we tried to negotiate a deal to get the Griffey ball back to Ken Griffey. I had the Cincinnati Reds PR people. I had the Cincinnati Reds clubhouse people. I had me. I had our head of operations and my daughter. And we had Joe. I could not get Joe to sell the ball back for anything. We were willing to pay him a few thousand dollars, get Ken Griffey to give a jersey, an autograph, a ball, a bat, a picture, anything to get the ball back. And Joe was resolute. He would not return the ball. His view is that he could use that ball to finance a huge portion of his annual expenses. He suspected he could get 50, 60, 70, $80,000 for that ball alone. As I was sitting talking to this fan, I learned 
because I got the whole report that he was a season ticket holder for the Marlins. He had caught many home run balls, always in the right place at the right time. He purposefully was ready for a Ken Griffey ball, having bought tickets always in that same area as a season ticket holder to catch balls, both during BP and during games. And he felt that this was his lottery ticket. And during the course of the negotiation, it occurred to me the worst feeling that can ever happen during a negotiation. I couldn't win. No matter what I offered, he was going to take that ball to market. We hadn't yet finished negotiating for a new stadium. That would happen in 2009. We were in the middle of negotiations. I had finished negotiating, bringing the Marlins to Florida six years earlier. I had finished negotiating nine years earlier, buying the Expos for Jeffrey Loria. I had negotiated concession deals, signage deals, season ticket deals, TV deals, negotiated with kids, adults. That was the first time that I had been in a negotiation with a fan or with anybody where I knew I couldn't win. So what do you do? When you're in a position that's a losing position, you have two choices. You walk away or you change your position. So I started going down that tack. I started doing reverse psychology, explaining to him that we felt that right now this was his best opportunity to maximize his publicity, his monetary value that he would have an opportunity to meet Ken Griffey. This negotiation went on through the course of the entire game. The game ended. I actually went to speak to Ken Griffey, told him I was trying to get the ball back, asked him if he would meet with Joe, and he wouldn't. Because I told him that I don't think we're going to get this ball, and I'm doing everything I can for you. And he was really cool about it. And my tack of trying to convince Joe to go off his position it got no traction at all. When you're in a negotiation, how do you know when it's time to walk away? The answer is, it, is that when you've exhausted every rational position that the other side could in any way be swayed to change his or her position, when you've exhausted every one of those positions, that's when you take a break. That's when you walk away. I looked at my daughter who was 13 at the time, I shrugged my shoulders. I looked at Joe and I said, the ball is yours. Let's be in touch in a day or two in case you change your mind or in case the value is not what you thought. And I appreciate that you took the time and that you are a season ticket holder. I then had to go meet the media because the media was waiting to see what became of the Ken Griffey ball. I had no idea there was going to be a claim by another fan that he had the ball, which turned out to be wrong, obviously, and I knew that. I had no idea what angle the press was looking for. I just knew that I had to meet them and tell them the story, tell them what happened that day, tell them why I was unable to secure the ball. But the one thing I was clear never to do was to impugn the right of that fan to keep that ball. That is an unspoken understanding between a baseball executive and the fans. When you get a ball, it's yours. That doesn't exist in football or basketball. In basketball, when you get the ball, you have to give it back. 
But in baseball, when you get a ball, it's yours. The truth is, when you get a bat, it's yours. Except often, we will send ball boys to give the person who got a bat a brand new bat because the player wants his old bat back. And most people will take a brand new bat or a different game use bat that's signed by the player in order to give the gamer back to the fan, back to the player, of course, I mean. But balls, generally the fans keep them. Never forget that day with Ken Griffey. As I think about what I would like from you, and I appreciate, by the way, that you are a fan of Nothing Personal. I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate that you go to YouTube, backslash Nothing Personal with David Sampson, and please subscribe. Tell your friends about Nothing Personal. Don't forget to rate and review. And I appreciate it. And I can't say it enough. Someone actually said to me, who listens to all the shows, who is a fan of the shows, said, you really thank everyone a lot. Why do you do that? There aren't a lot of podcasts or shows where the audience gets thanked as much as you thank your audience. And I think that comes from my experience as a baseball executive and my knowledge that, yes, it's all about business, but the other side is just as important and the relationship between a fan and a host or a fan and a player or a fan and an executive Without you, I'm talking to only Coca. What good is that? And I recognize that when you take the time out of your day to listen to this show or to watch this show, that you are choosing to spend and allocate your time to me. Much like when you're a fan of a team, you are choosing or allocating your time to give yourself to that team to feel a connection to that moment, to that team. I'm in the memory-making business. We made memories as a team. We've made memories here at Nothing Personal. And my commitment to you as fans of Nothing Personal, whether this is your first show or your 150th show, is that we are going to keep going. While it may be business, When it comes to fans, it's okay to say it's personal.